You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off last time. Should be verse 22. We're going to go out to about verse 40. I'll read to about verse 40. I don't think we're going to get any further than that this morning. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives light to to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to thee, you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Heavenly Father, we do look to you this morning, and we pray, Father, that you'd be pleased to instruct us. That, Father, you'd be pleased to work in each of our hearts. Oh, Father, we would be able to look upon this text and that you would give us understanding of this text, that you would drive away any confusion, that you would... Lord, not only give us instruction in this text, but Father, you would also cause this text to bear upon our hearts, to bear upon our wills, cause your word, O Father, to uh, correct us if we need correction, encourage men if we need encouraging. There's so many things here that are encouraging, Father. Strengthen us by way of your word, O Lord. Shower your compassion upon us by way of your Lord. By way of your word, Lord, 
And Father, we pray that you would be pleased to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. As I've said, and I think it's been a while since I've made this comment, but I made these comments when we started studying John many months ago, that um, one of the tricky things about uh, teaching through John's gospel is that you have a number of themes that kind of pop up, um, and then they, they submerge back into the text again, and they pop up, and they submerge. And all of this is to say that uh, John's gospel is not given to us in a way where, okay, we have uh, theological point one, and then two, three nice little neat subpoints, and then we have theological point number two, and then all these little nice and neat little uh, subpoints. No, um, uh, John's uh, gospel is is can be at different times hard to outline, uh, especially First John. If anyone has ever done any work in First John, uh, then you know that is a very difficult letter to outline. And it's because you're getting all of these things kind of, they're all kind of coming at once. And, uh, you know, if, if you were to stop and you were to fully develop any of these things in any given place, you're going to be repeating almost everything you said, uh, just a matter of a, a chapter or two down the road. Now, all this to say, I'm saying this because stopping in verse 40 is really kind of a superficial um, thing to do. I, I'm really doing it for the sake of we can only take so much at a time. Uh, I think, as I said last week, that in many ways John 6 is, is really a chapter that we should take as one, uh, as one whole. Uh, the problem with that is if we go into any kind of detail or depth, it makes for, it's going to make for a really long talk. And we're all in different places. There's some of you who have already shared with me, hey, that'd be great. Do it. If it takes three hours, do it. Um, the problem with that is, if we're not real familiar with it, there's just going to be so much that's going to be left on the floor. I remember Dr. Watt, uh, a professor I had not only at Geneva, but also had at RPTS, he said, you know, learning is like painting a wall. It's like, you know, uh, putting a coat of paint on. And anybody who's done any painting knows, I mean, you don't want to put too much on at one time. Why? It's all lost on the floor. Uh, so we're going to... Uh, take what we can here this morning, and uh, we'll, for the sake of, uh, of it all, I think by the time we get to verse 40, we're probably going to have had enough, but if I get the impression that we've had enough before we get there, we can stop earlier. Uh, it makes uh, no difference, but uh, there is a couple of divisions that I think I could point out to you here, and uh, as I did last week, we have the miracle itself in verses 1 through 14. Some people will divide it verse 14. Uh, some, as I did last week, will divide it verse 15. And then you have a second miracle, namely Jesus walking on the water. Um, we'll have that verses 16 through 21. And then in verse 22, where we pick up this morning, we have uh, Jesus' discourse, if you will. And many commentators actually refer to verses 22 and following as a bread of life discourse. So um, Jesus is now going to begin to expound on what has happened. We're going to begin to get some, um, uh, some teaching uh, on this uh, miracle. Now, in verse 22, we find it's the next day. We could say the next day after what? The next day after this miracle has been performed, namely the miracle of feeding 
5,000 men plus women and children. Now, the reader knows that another miracle took place, uh, but the crowd doesn't know that. And what is the other uh, miracle that has taken place? Well, Jesus walks across the Sea of Galilee. And the sea is not a, a, at this point in time, we know that, that, that through the night the sea was very turbulent. And uh, Jesus, as sovereign creator of the universe, suspended the laws of nature and commanded the water to support his body uh, as he walked across the sea. Um, and uh, he could have done this in a way where the disciples would have never have known, uh, but he chose not to. He chose uh, that his disciples would see him doing this. Now, this particular miracle is a miracle that has taken place somewhat privately with the 12 disciples in the boat. But it's the next day now, and where the crowd is concerned, uh, they believe Jesus is still on the eastern shores with them. And they're looking for him. And we're told that they, they, listen, they know there was one boat. They know the boat departed. They know the boat contained the disciples they know Jesus didn't get into the boat, and they know Jesus is no longer there. So scratching their heads, where is Jesus? Well, he, he must have left and no one noticed. In the meantime, we're told that there are boats from Tiberias. That's verse 23. They're showing up, so people are getting in the boats, and I assume their best guess is that he's headed to Capernaum, which Capernaum is somewhat of a headquarters, if you will, uh, for Jesus' uh, ministry, at least his Galilean ministry. So uh, I assume it's their best guess he's gone to Capernaum. Let's get in the boats. Let's go to the other side. Verse 25, they find him on the other side. They catch up with him, and they, they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, um, a couple of things. We'll say a couple of things about this really quick. If you look at verse 59, you'll see that Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, I don't know exactly, and I don't think anyone knows exactly, when this uh, question and answer starts uh, in, in the synagogue. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, I don't know if they're asking this outside of the synagogue or if this question is asked in the synagogue. It's really kind of trivial. Um, I think we could say safely that verses 27 and following are certainly part of the, the discourse in the synagogue. But they ask him, when did you, they ask the question in verse 25, when did you come here? And um, this would be a perfect opportunity for Jesus to explain. He'd say, well, you know, I missed the boat. Uh, truthfully, he didn't miss the boat. He had asked his disciples to go across to the other side while he prayed on the mountain. We know that from the uh, testimony of the other gospel writers. Um, but he could have shared with them, I, well, I walked. I walked across the sea. He doesn't do that. Uh, instead, notice how he does answer. Verse 26, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, before we go any further, notice that saying keeps coming up, doesn't it? Truly, truly, I say to you. You remember it came up a lot in chapter 5. If you turn back to chapter 5, uh, you'll see it in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord. And then verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. 
and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And then we come here to chapter 6, and there we are in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying this is certain. It's as certain as it can get. Um, this is all certain. And actually, in the Greek, it's uh, amen, amen. It's the word amen. Basically, what he says is amen, amen. Lego homin. Amen, amen. I say to you is what he's literally saying. In other words, what I'm about to say is as certain as anything that could possibly be said. Uh, this is certain. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, that's a pointed comment, isn't it? You know, sometimes you'll hear people talk and say, well, you know, uh, Jesus was always nice. And of course, what is meant by nice? What's meant by nice is as 21st century America would consider nice. We really probably are coming to a place now where we almost need a theology of nice because the idea of nice as defined by 21st century America has lost its way. We think it's nice not to say this kind of stuff. And we're jarred, actually, when we hear this kind of stuff. And people that are not that familiar with the gospel, which is for the most part most people in our culture today, can't imagine that Jesus ever talked like this. And as a consequence, it seems inappropriate for a pastor to talk like that. But I would share with you that um, you have, if you're going to be faithful, and, not, and I'm not just talking about a pastor in the pulpit, but all of us, if we're going to be faithful and we're truly going to be loving, and I think that's the word we ought to use instead of nice, if we're truly going to be loving, there are times when we are going to have to share some pointed statements once in a while, where we're going to have to sit down and have hard talks with one another once in a while. There have been times where people have had to have hard talks with me. I can recall a seminary professor I remember when I first started going to seminary, he, he, he was a retiring professor, but I'm so thankful for, for his, uh, uh, his counsel. Uh, his name was Dr. Robeson. I had him for the very last class that he taught, and it was only the second class that I took. Uh, and I'm so thankful for that. And I remember after class one day saying, Dr. Robeson, can I talk with you? And I shared some things that were going on. He didn't know me from Adam. It was only like maybe the second day of class. I just listened to him. I listened to his wisdom, and I thought, I'm going to ask this guy. I'm going to ask him. And what he said to me was, young man, you've got a lot of derelicts in your life that need dealt with. Ouch. Well, how else was I going to deal with them unless somebody loved me enough to tell me that? Here we see Jesus Rabbi, we've looked everywhere for you. We've even crossed the sea for you. When did you get here? They have gone through a lot of trouble to follow him, haven't they? Last time we saw that they, they walked, they hurried all the way across the, the, the northern shores 
They, 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 they spanned that. I don't know. I think I've read somewhere it's about 10 miles that they hurried to meet Jesus on the other side. Jesus is on a boat sailing across. They're going across the northern shore in order to rendezvous with him on foot. Now they've crossed the sea back over. They're following him. Rabbi, we found you. When did you come here? Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs. You're seeking me because you got your bellies filled up. What he's saying is, I'm not really your God. Your belly is. You know, we could spend a lot of time on this verse, actually, because this verse really does call us from time to time to take a look at ourselves, to take a look at our motives. I, you know, I'll use myself again as an example. You know, I can remember in seminary at one point uh, towards, I'd say, maybe the middle of my studies when I was full-time. Uh, I was working two part-time jobs at the time and doing the commute and trying to keep up with the work. And the reading assignments are, were enormous. And at one point in this, I just, I just, you know, I was like, I'm not really reading my Bible anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm reading books that are about the Bible. I'm reading wonderful. I mean, the reading lists usually were fantastic. I'm reading these great writers who have wrote these great books, but I'm not reading my Bible. And that caused me to look at some, just to do a little more um, investigation. And I had to ask myself, this, well, Rick, at this point, what is your motive? What, what are, what, you started out, you started out to grow closer to the Lord. But what is your motive now? And I had to come to the painful reality time after time that my reality was, that, 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 that my motive in reality was to get an A on the next exam, not to grow closer to Jesus. And I say this because here we can be, we can be killing ourselves to study, thinking that we're doing this great thing when in reality our hearts can be off to the left or off to the right. And we could ask ourselves the question, why, why have we gathered here this morning? Have we gathered here this morning to draw closer to Jesus? Is that why we're here this morning? And someone would say, well, you, you, you know, yeah, I mean, that's why I always come. Well, keep your, keep your finger on the pulse of that. Because the flesh is so slippery and so subtle and so sly that you can be off of that. You can go, you can, your, your train can come off of those tracks without you realizing it until much water has gone under the bridge and all of a sudden you discover, wait, I haven't come here to draw closer to Jesus in a long time. And someone here might be seriously asking themselves this question. You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, um, we're like one church family and I'm kind of expected to be here because I'm part of the church family. And I, I don't know. I mean, did I come here this morning? Did I come up those steps this morning to draw closer to Jesus? And from time to time, we're going to ask ourselves that question. I don't think I'm alone. I think we're going to, if I'm alone, I'm going to be happy. 
but I really don't think I'm alone. And we're going to ask that question, and we're going to say, you know what, I, I, I didn't come up those steps specifically to draw closer to Jesus. In fact, my, my heart wasn't 100% devoted to draw closer to Jesus at all. Well, then that's, that's what Jesus... Jesus knows our hearts. He knows why we come up those steps. Notice what he says in verse 27. He says, listen, don't labor for the food that perishes. Now, what is he saying there? Is he saying, okay, quit, you know, don't spend all your time out in the hot sun raising those crops. Don't spend all your time out in the sun uh, doing, uh, doing this manual labor. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that at all. How do we know that? Because we know that that interpretation wouldn't withstand the scrutiny of the rest of the Bible, would it? Because the rest of the Bible makes it really clear that God has gifted each one of us and given us skill sets so that we can scatter out into the community and we can contribute to the community by being plumbers, by being nurses, by being mechanics, by being doctors, by being whatever. And that work is part of our call. And as part of our call, uh, it's, it's, it's sacred in, in many respects. And the Apostle Paul puts it pretty frankly, if you don't work, you don't eat. Um, that's pretty frank. So we know that that's not what Jesus is saying. Well, then what is he saying? He says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. What is he saying here? What he is saying here is you need to change your goals. What you're hotly pursuing is that which will perish. That's what he's saying here. We have to work. I mean, we have to get up in the morning. We have to go to work so that we can earn the money, so that we can go to the grocery store, so that we can put food on our table. Jesus is not saying not to do that. What Jesus is saying here is that should not be our greatest goal in life, that there should be another goal that's out ahead of that, that there should be another goal. He says it very well in another place, seek first the kingdom of God. Then all these things will be added to you. What are we to be on about? When we wake up in the morning, what are we to be on about? What we're to be on about is how we're going to grow closer to the Lord in everything that we do. That doesn't mean we can't have recreation. That doesn't mean we can't go out and play basketball. But we include that game of basketball uh, before the face of God. Let's have a let's go have a game of basketball. Let's go play baseball. You know, go play some guitar. Do all for the glory of God. But have as our goal, as as the DNA of our highest priority, seeking the kingdom of the Lord. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying in these verses. Don't labor for the food that perishes. You know, we could think of, of Luke chapter 12 where the, the, man, the wealthy man says, you know something, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns so that I can store up a whole bunch of stuff. Then I can kick my feet up on my desk and relax. And Jesus says, you fool. Don't you know that tonight your soul is required of you? 
It's another way where he graphically teaches much the same thing. It's a different application in that parable, but it's much the same, the same thing. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Here we see this eternal life is a gift. It's a gift. Jesus says, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, what does that mean to have a seal set? Uh, I can remember growing up for many years, mom was a notary, and she had this little thing in her desk, looked like a pair of pliers with this little little uh, 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 thing on the end of it. You stuck a piece of paper in it, and then you squeezed it together, and it made that notary imprint. We've all seen that, right? And then she would sign it. What that meant was this particular document is authentic. If it was a bill of sale, uh, you know, two people, uh, the, 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 the transaction is recorded on this paper, piece of paper, the buyer and the seller sign the piece of paper, then the notary puts their seal on it, and it makes it legal and binding because it has its seal set upon it. And the, Jesus is again saying the same thing that he was saying in John chapter 5. If you look back to John chapter 5, Jesus there in verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. Notice what he says in verse 31. If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And he's speaking of the Father. And you remember when we were looking at these passages, the Father is bearing testimony or setting his seal upon Jesus in three ways. One is the, test of the, the ministry of John the Baptist, right? He is the voice of one crying out in the desert who comes... Uh, before the Lord and prepares the way for him, promised in the Scriptures. The second is the works that Jesus is doing. Uh, in chapter 5, we have the healing of the invalid at the pool, and that work actually is testifying to Jesus. The sign signifies something. We'll get to that here in a moment. It's not a, a, a rote miracle just for the sake of having a miracle. No, the miracle has a purpose. It's a sign that signifies something. These works, that's the second, that's the second testimony that Jesus mentions in uh, this text. These works are the works that the Father has given him to do, and they testify to the ministry of Jesus. But the third is his word. His word. The Scriptures, why are we doing what we do this morning? Because this is the only place where we can learn about Jesus, isn't it? Where else are we going to learn about Jesus? In the Word. I think we got an amen back there. So it is on Him. Notice that... that um, Jesus is also one of those preachers that's always repeating Himself. I just... Um, want to bring that out because um, someone listens to a number of my sermons, yeah, you know, you're always saying the same thing over and over again. Well, so is Jesus. So, hey. He is saying the same thing over and over again, isn't he? Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then in verse 28, they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? 
Um, what's interesting about that statement is here they're ready to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. But they're also in full belief that they can accomplish what Jesus would call them to do. Do you understand where I'm going with that? If you, Lord, you just tell us what we need to do to get eternal life and we'll do it. There's an assumption there that we're capable of doing it. That's a faulty assumption. And it's one that Jesus has to deal with. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What is Jesus saying? Well, here's the work. The work is that you trust me. The work is that you believe in me. In fact, a lot of the old writers wrote that way. Writers who were counseling pastors and teachers would say, listen, don't try to disciple a person until they've come to faith because their first work is to believe. They wrote that way. They, I, I got a, a numerous books in my office that have those sentences in them. Your first work is to believe. Your first work is to believe. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This isn't just the way that New Testament people come to faith or get saved or however you want to put it or come into a state of grace or um, uh, uh, partake of salvation. It's the way everybody has done it since Genesis 3. Abraham believes God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. Now, are we saved by believing? Are we saved by faith? Does, does faith save us? No. Say, what? No, faith is not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Faith unites us to Jesus. I like to use the, you've heard me use these lights. It's been a long time since I've done it, but... If, if Emily were to go out in the hallway and hit the switch, what would happen to these lights? They would go out. Why would they go out? Because she would, in essence, be cutting the wire. That's what that switch does. You know, it closes and connects the wire, but when you, when you flip it, it opens the wire. It's, almost, it's, it's really like taking a pair, of, a pair of wire cutters and cutting the wire, in essence. It breaks the circuit. These lights are now no longer connected to the source to the electric company until that switch is hit. Faith is like those wires. These lights would not come on just because of the wires. They come on because the wires lead back to the source, and this is what saving faith is. This is why God can say, listen, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. How can that be? Because Abraham is connected to the Savior who is to come. The Savior who will go to the cross for the sins of Abraham. The Savior who will die on that cross to take away the sins of Abraham. The Savior who will earn a perfect righteousness in order to give to Abraham. See, all this is done outside of ourselves. Our first work is to believe. 
Our first work is to get connected to the Savior. That's what saving faith does. These folks believe, these guys believe enough to travel 10 miles on foot to see Jesus on the other side of this eastern shore of Galilee. They believe enough to get back in the boats and follow him back to the western side. But they're not in possession of saving faith. As I said last week, if somebody would have walked from shipping port to Chester in order to be at this service, what would we say? What tremendous faith and resolve to want to worship the Lord. Well, that's what these people did. And Jesus said to them, listen, you're not seeking me because you saw the sign. What's he mean by that? Let's tease that out a little further. Because we could say, wait a second, they did see the sign. They were all fed. Which way is it? Did they see the sign or didn't they see the sign? Well, in one respect, they saw the sign, but in another respect, they didn't see the sign. Why? Because they're failing to see what the sign signifies. In one respect, they're chasing him around because they've seen many signs. He's a miracle worker. But they're not seeing what that sign signifies. Jesus didn't come just to be a miracle worker. He came to be the Savior of the world. So we can be seeing the sign, but not seeing the sign. Do you follow me? And that's why Jesus says, listen, you're not here because you saw the sign. In other words, you're not here because you saw what the sign signifies. You're here because you got your bellies filled up. That's what he's saying. Let's go just a little further if we could, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, notice how they respond to him. Jesus said, this is the work of God, verse 29 that you believe in him in whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, the reader might say, scratch his head and say, wait a second, didn't he just feed 5,000 men plus women and children? But let's think about this a little further and try as best we can to think about this as if we are first century Jews. We're first century Jews. Our man is Moses, man. He is our guy. Moses is our man. And, you know, we concluded last time we saw Jesus that he must be the prophet that Moses spoke about. Now, if he's the prophet that Moses spoke about, then he's greater than Moses. And if he's greater than Moses, then he should be able to perform a sign that's greater than Moses. That's what's going on here. Because notice what they do. What sign? Verse 29. They said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see what they're doing there? Are you greater than Moses? Give us a greater sign than Moses gave us, than Moses gave our fathers. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say that there, that is again. Truly, truly, I say to you. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Now what does that remind you of? Those who have been following this series. What does that remind you? It should remind you of something immediately that we just encountered in John chapter 4. Look back with me to John chapter 4. You're going to see an amazing parallel here. Jesus, has, it's, in the, it's in the middle of the day. It's in the heat of the day. Jesus has made his way into Samaria. There he is by Jacob's well. 
And a woman from Samaria in verse 7 comes to draw water, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And then verse 9, the woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Notice this. Are you greater than our father Jacob? You see, up north, Jacob's the guy. Jacob's the guy. Are you greater than Jacob? He gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She said, give me this water. The crowd said, give us this bread. Is this woman in a state of grace yet? No. Now, she's on her way, and she will arrive here because Jesus is going to bring her home. But at this point in time, her motives are wrong. Give me this water so I won't have to come out here in the heat and draw water no more. You see, she's still missing it. Give us this bread so we can stay out of the fields. They're missing it. See how they're falling short? It's the same thing. This is, the op- this, this is an unbelieving heart. This is the anatomy, if you will, of an unbelieving heart. This is what we're seeing over and over again. We're seeing it by the individual woman at the Samaritan, uh, at the Samaria at the well. We're seeing it by the crowd, uh, in light of the crowds here uh, in Capernaum in the synagogue. Give us this bread, verse 34, chapter 6. Give us this bread always. Okay, you want this bread? Verse 35, I am the bread. You're staring at it. It's me. I'm the bread, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You're the bread of life? Yes. Well, how? If you're the bread of life, how is it that how is it that people aren't believing? How is it that people aren't getting it? If you're the one who's truly been sent by heaven, do you understand the question I'm asking? If God has sent you, how can there be any question about this whatsoever? And this is what Jesus is dealing with in verse. 36 and forward. I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What a statement is that? Jesus, what are you saying? Well, I'm saying that all that the Father gives me will come to me. No, this thing isn't failing. Because there is this group of people that the Father has given to me, and every single one of them will come to me. And now we're in predestinarian waters, aren't we? Heavy predestinarian waters. 
And you've heard me talk about uh, this in the past. And what do I always say whenever we're talking about predestination? We always want to understand predestination puts the sovereignty of God forward, right? Okay, there's a group of people that are going to come to Jesus. Jesus is not failing. Just because this crowd doesn't believe right now, just because this crowd's God is their belly, that has nothing to do with any failure on the part of Jesus or on the part of the Father. No, there's a group of people that are going to come to me, and Jesus is going to elaborate on this in John 17 in detail. And I think we can make an argument he's doing it again in John 10, and we'll deal with that when we get to those places. But here we have the sovereignty of God being put forward in salvation. But there's something else that we always need to keep forward. And what is it? You've heard me say it a number of times. It's human responsibility. You see, if we don't put human responsibility forward, then we're going to come to this conclusion that, listen, okay, whoever's in this group that the Father is giving to Jesus, they're going to come. But if I'm not in that group, I'm never going to come. So it makes no difference what I do. No. That's fatalism. That's not biblical predestination. It's fatalism. It's, it's, it's an error. In fact, this very verse doesn't teach that. Notice what the verse teaches. All that the Father gives me will come to him. What does it mean to come to him? To come to him is to come to him in trusting faith. It's to be hooked up to the light, to the power company. And light comes on, spiritual life. But notice what's said in the second half of the verse. Whoever comes to me, there's the human responsibility part. Some of us say, well, how do I know if I'm in the group? Well, ask this question. Have you come? <laughs> have you come? I don't mean to make a joke out of it, but have you come? Because some, this doesn't happen so much in our day as it did in the, in the 19th century where people really, uh, it was widely believed. I mean, these things were taught. People believed this. They should believe this. We should believe it today, but we don't. 21st century America wants to believe that we're in control. Yeah, look at, look at the news and see how much control we've got. That's a joke. God is in control. But don't fret about whether you're written in the book of life or not. Ask yourself the question, have I come? When I share the gospel with people, I don't go on about the book of life ever. I present Jesus to people. This is Jesus. This is what he's like. This is, this is what he has done. This is what he has accomplished. And he calls you. He commands you to come to him. There's only one reason we don't come to him. This is cut to the chase. Why would we not want to come to him? It's because we love our sin. Predestination has never kept a single soul out of heaven. What keeps people out of heaven is love of sin. I don't want to give up my autonomy. I don't want to give up being the boss. I don't want to give up the sin that I love. That's why people don't come. I want to do it my way. No, I, I want to earn it. I don't want to just be a beggar and cast myself at the feet of Jesus and beg for his mercy. Oh, you don't. You don't want to do that. Well, you're never going to go to heaven if you don't want to do that. Because that's the only way we can get to heaven. Spurgeon used to say it this way so graphically, if you can touch one sound place on your flesh, you are lost. What did he mean by that? What he meant by that is if you think in any way, shape, or form that you could adjust and manipulate your personal performance 
in such a way that God would say, you know what, there you go. Come on in. Then you're lost. The Apostle Paul couldn't do that. And we have no Apostle Pauls running around today. No, how do we come? One of the things that I've observed over the years about people that are very spiritually mature is this. You know how they think about themselves? You do know, don't you? They think that they are wretches. I was just talking to my Aunt Peg here not very long ago. I called her you know, while I was sick. I called her up on the phone to see how she's doing. You know, as we started talking about how miserably short we are from the mark, me and her sat and talked about how sinful we are, and we don't even know how sinful we are. And to think that, you know, there God is in our sin. See, this is, see, grace is starting to, to surface, isn't it? You are staring at a wretch. Did you guys know that when you come up the steps, you're going to come up this morning and listen to a wretch ramble on for 45 minutes? You say, well, you're past the 45 minutes, Rick. I'm a wretch. Why do I share that with you? Because Christ is a merciful Savior who's come to save wretches. He saved a wretch like me. That comes from somewhere, didn't it? That's not my own. I'm stealing that somewhere. It comes from a song entitled Amazing Grace. We got to keep two things forward. Listen to this one. God is sovereign in salvation. We are responsible to come. If you came, is that because you are more righteous and more smart than your neighbor who hasn't come? No. No. As much as we may want to believe that. No, you came because God gave you out of eternity to his son to be his bride. Have you thought about that? Somebody would say, you know, I'm not the guy that hits the lottery, man. I'm not the guy that wins the prize. I'm not the guy that, whoa, wait a second now. Wait a second now. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are that guy. You are that gal. Out of eternity past, there has never been a point in time, ever, when you were not proper the Lord's. And notice how secure you are. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down, this is verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. How sure is your salvation if you're in Christ Jesus? Amen, amen, let go, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, says Jesus. It's as certain as his work and his activity and his volition. It is certain as the Father. It's resting on the certainty, the power, and the strength of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is grace. That is grace. Amen. We did it. Verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in Him should have eternal life. 
and I'll raise him up on the last day. Are you looking to the are you looking to him? Are you looking to him? Are you looking on the son? Are you believing in the son? Are you trusting in the son? That's the question that we ask ourselves. Heavenly Father, we so thank you, Father, for this careful discourse that Jesus has given us. That indeed it can be a rebuke to us, it can be a correction in many ways, but it is such an encouragement. It is so encouraging and so strengthening to read these words. And what a comfort this is to know that our salvation does not rest in our strength in any way, shape, or form. It's not resting in our discipline. We would be lost before the end of the day. We'd be lost before the next hour is over. But our salvation is resting in your strength. Our salvation is resting in your grace. Our salvation is resting in the performance of Jesus, which is perfect. Our salvation is resting in the will of the Father. It's resting in the work of the Son, and it's resting in the application of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you and we praise you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.